From Yahoo Finance, this is Ballots and Dollars, a podcast about the politics that affect your pocketbook. I'm Rick Newman. And I'm Alexis Christophorus. And today we are taking a closer look at the American electorate in the lead up to the 2020 election. And we are pleased to have a guest with us today. That is Rob Griffin. He is research director for the Democracy Fund Voter Study Group. Rob, it is great to have you here on our Ballots and Dollars podcast. Woo-hoo! <laughs> um, you get a woo-hoo from, from Rick. Um, Rob, I want you, before we really delve in here, because there's a lot to pick apart, we want to talk about what the surveys are and how you survey folks, because they're some of the largest public opinion surveys in the nation. First off, thanks for having me. Um, So I'm with the Democracy Fund Voter Study Group, and we do two surveys that we're really known for. So the first is called the Voter Survey, and this lets us track the exact same people over time. So we've been interviewing the same couple of thousand people since about 2000, 2011, 2012. So this lets us do things like know what's up with Obama-Trump voters today because we actually know how they voted back in 2011, 2012. We don't have to rely on shaky memory and maybe what they think they remember doing back then. Um, and the other survey is called Nationscape. And with that one, it's a really big survey. We're interviewing more than 6,000 people every week. 500,000 people total over the course of the whole election. This lets us track people over time. It's a fresh sample every week, but let's track things over time. It lets us do demographic deep dives, so we're able to break out groups that you're not typically able to talk about because of just how big it is. Uh, And we're also able to do these geographic deep dives. So we're able to, at the end of it, start to disentangle maybe how the people of Des Moines look different from the people of Phoenix when it comes to sort of their opinions about American politics. Rob, I've used your survey data in some stories I've written. And my, tell me if this is right. My understanding is with the voter study, you can t- you can actually tell how real voters' views on things change over time, right? That's the value of it compared with, you know, just calling, ni- you know, 970 people at any given moment. Yeah, there's sort of different tools. We always use a little bit of a telescope microscope analogy, right? They do different things. So the one you just talked about, the voter survey, because we're tracking the same people over time, We just don't have to say, hey, people are getting more liberal on immigration issues. We actually know which people it are. We know what part of the country they're from. We know about their education level. We know if their income went up or down in the last, you know, six years. So it's really a tool that's built to help understand the why behind some of these things. Great stuff. And I'm sure there are times when those two surveys diverge and not. We'll get into that a little bit. But I want to talk about some of the takeaways thus far, right? We're within a year now of the election. And you're finding from your surveys that the economy doesn't seem to matter as much as it used to for voters. Remember, we would always say it's the economy, stupid, when we were talking politics and the economy. Is that not the case now, Rob? So I I think the, the story here is just a little subtle, but the general direction is right, that the economy probably used to matter a bit more than it does today. Um, And there's some maybe good reasons to think that. So one of the things is that what we're seeing with people's perceptions of the economy is that they're much more heavily influenced by partisanship than they used to be in the past. That is to say, people look at their own party ID, like how they sort of identify with the parties. They look at who's the person in power. And then that starts to have an impact on whether they think the economy is doing well or not. So when you have an environment in which everyone's becoming a little bit more polarized, and even their perceptions of the economy, even their perceptions of their own personal finances starts to be heavily influenced by this, that that just sort of creates a world where, of course, economic considerations are going to have less of an effect. You're going to have people a little more locked into their attitudes as a result of this. So let me give an example yeah, about right. what mm-hmm. we saw even. Look at the um, 20th century, Right? If we take consumer data, consumer confidence data, and presidential approval, there's a nice strong relationship between it. Consumer confidence goes up, presidential approval goes up. During the Obama and Trump administrations, 
it's pretty much a flat relationship. There's no relationship between how the economy is doing, uh, how consumer confidence is doing, and the approval rating for those two presidents. Is it oversimplified to say that the economy matters less to voters when the economy is strong? It could it could well be the case, right? So we, you know, the thing about studying things in real time is you don't have all the sort of counterfactuals. We don't have the alternate universe where actually we did run into a recession already and things like that. Um, so what I would not say is that like, you know, th the economy has no effect. It's probably just smaller than it used to be. So let's say today that a recession were to hit within the next, you know, couple of months. My suspicion would be that that would have a smaller impact than it would, let's say, back in the 80s. So if you want to think about this in terms of the effect it can have, uh, lower ceilings, higher floors when it comes to presidential approval. So it's probably just even, a little more locked in. Even uh, if what your, your findings here are subtle, this is crucially important because – uh, I mean, the state of the economy, we're, we're, it's just conventional wisdom that when the economy is strong, the incumbent president gets reelected. If, if he or she is running for reelection, it's always a he mm -hmm. so far. Um, is that less so for Trump? Is that a, is that a reasonable takeaway? Right. So we, we've got an incredibly strong economy right now, right? Low unemployment, rising wages, the whole kit and caboodle. And, you know, take a look at Trump's approval. It's just a flat line uh, pretty much since Hovering 2017. around 43-ish percent. And, yeah. and you brought up the 80s earlier. You had Ronald Reagan in 1983 with an approval rating of 60 percent right. as he was launching his reelection campaign. Yep. Yet Trump can't seem to break out of this, you know, 40 percent, 45 percent approval rating. You think that has more to do about people's personal feelings about Trump than it does about their feelings about the economy? I think I think it's a yes and, right? I think on the one hand, you've got a unique figure that is Trump who's particularly polarizing, who's just not able to capitalize on this really great uh, economic conditions that, that are going on throughout his uh, administration. And the other piece of it is, again, just my suspicion that we're probably living through an era where some of these economic considerations just have a smaller impact than they used to. So um – it seems that most Republicans are let, – let's assume it's Trump. I mean we, we are assuming Trump is going to be the candidate. Sure. Um, most Republicans will probably vote for Trump and most Democrats will probably vote for whoever the Democrat is. But there's a big group of people who are not Republicans or Democrats um, and I, th I think independents actually are a larger group than either Republicans or Democrats, even if they tend to lean one way or the other, right? So uh, what, we're, what we're always trying to figure out is like how many voters are actually – what portion of voters are actually up for grabs here? Mm. What portion of voters does this actually matter for that it could determine their vote? So this is, this is sort of a classic piece of knowledge that I actually happen to think is wrong. Um, so there's always this number, right? There are actually more independents than there are Democrats and Republicans. Yeah. If you ask those independents, hey, do you lean towards a particular party like Democrat or party, Republican Party, there's a healthy chunk of that, roughly about 40 percent, that will peel off and say that they actually have ties to the party. But this is not just sort of them sort of saying maybe I lean towards this stuff. They're, the rate at which they vote for Democrats and Republicans over time, these independent leaners, is as high as partisans. So these are people mm. who are sort of closet partisans. They don't so want to admit – Does that mean there are essentially Republicans who are just not registered with the Republican Party? Yes. And Democrats who are just not registered with the Democratic Party. There are party. people who are functionally, behaviorally, they they look like partisans. In fact, actually, depending on how you break out partisans, they have a higher level of loyalty than even some partisans. So that it, it's one of hmm. these things that seem it's a bit counterintuitive. And what's happening here is that um, politics has gotten kind of ugly. And being independent kind of has a nice ring to it, right? Mm -hmm. I'm an independent yeah. thinker. I make up my own mind. 
But behaviorally, these people, if you track their behavior over time, these do not look like what so do you But they, they don't have a say in the primaries, though, right? I mean, for people who are so loyal and passionate, they're not able to vote in a Democratic primary or a Republican primary because they're independent. Depends on the state. but So it's going to vary a little bit state by state because some places have open primaries, some people have closed primaries. But often, yes, these yep. people who would register as independent not going to get a say. So do you have a sense for what portion of the electorate actually is nonpartisan, nonpartisan independents who are not um, aligned with either mm-hmm. party? So it's probably – well, so two, two, two numbers I'll throw out you here. So one is if you look at people 18 and over, what do they look like? Maybe something like 10, 12 percent of the population. But if you look at voters, it's actually a much smaller percentage because people who are less dedicated to one party also have less of a reason to vote. They see less difference between the two parties. They don't see as big a consequences necessarily as picking between the two of them. So all their incentives to, to vote, kind of some of them at least, go away. So really, once you get down to how many voters do they make up, you're talking single digits. So when you ta- when you mentioned before the Obama-Trump voters, so yeah. just so everybody understands, those are people who voted for Obama in 2012. Is that what mm-hmm. it means, 2012? Yep. And, then, and then Trump in 2016. Are those people not the the small sliver of truly nonpartisan voters? So some of them are, as well as, by the way, the Romney-Clinton voters. There's those portion of the so electorate that's people that, who voted for Romney in 2012, 2012 yep. and then Clinton in 2016. Correct. Yep. Yeah. So so people who flip between the parties, there's a certain percentage of that that happens pretty much every election cycle. And some of it's just people having inconsistent sort of voting behavior or, or just choosing that they like one candidate more than another. There's another piece of Obama-Trump voters, though, that is probably a long-term shift. So go back to the middle of the 20th century. White non-college voters have been kind of slowly leaving the Democratic Party for going mm-hmm. on about 50 years yep. now. So part of that Obama to Trump thing is the is the last pieces of that population starting to sift their way out of, of the Democratic Party and back into the Republican Party. And you Party. touched on something, Trump's base, right, which tends to be white, classing work, uh, working class Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them tend to be older. Mm-hmm. Is there going to be a demographic shift here during this in the electorate as we move up to the election? And could that work against President Trump. Yeah. So how I always talk about this is to say it's sort of like a slow moving iceberg. Demographic change is very, very slow, but its effect is election over election. It just keeps coming. So let's take that population you talked about, white non-college. This used to be the vast majority of the American electorate. You go back to 1980, more than, you know, it was about, I think, seven in 10 voters were white non-college. It's a big chunk of the population. You go out to 2016, they only made up 44% of voters in 2016. So this is year over year. This is a population that's shrinking because we're racially diversifying. And we're also getting more educated. So, so that's a group even that year over year kind of creates uh, some headwinds for the Republican Party because it's been such a huge part of their base and it's shrinking. Are the Republicans replacing them with any other type of voter? So the, so the, the thing about that shift with white non-college voters is they're not necessarily replacing them with anybody else right now. But that group, uh, one, is still the most populous group in the electorate if you were to break them out. Again, 44 percent of voters. That's not nothing. Second piece of it is they're really well distributed for the purposes of electoral representation. That is to say they're overrepresented in swing states and places that really make the election turn one way or the other. So at least in the short term, even though this is a headwind election over election for the Republican Party, in the short term, it's a really good trade-off. And it can allow for things like Trump not winning the popular vote but still winning the electoral right, college. As we saw last so time. given all, all these sort of subtle changes we're talking about, can you sort of get to a bottom line in terms of the type of voter who is going to determine the 2020 election? So we know that it's it's going to come down to a relatively small number of voters in a relatively small number of states, right? That's the swing states. There might yeah. be five or six of those. 
Um, who are the voters who are going to make the difference? So it, it's sort of there's sort of two worlds we might be living in. So the first world is one where the real swing states are going to be in the Midwest, and that's going to be predominantly white, non-college voters, um, and potentially even sort of the other populations in those states who turned out at lower rates but are Democratic-leaning. So there's African-American populations, there's young voters. It could be the case that sort of that mixture of groups is really what's deciding the election. If we live in a slightly different world where the tipping point states actually are part of the Sun Belt, so maybe... Is it possible that Georgia is actually in the mix now? We have saw some really close elections with Stacey Abrams. Arizona has been trending left for years. Is it possible that that's in the mix? Uh, Florida is the perpetual sort of tipping point state, mm -hmm. really narrow margins in this state. Um, if that is the world that we live in, where those are really the battlegrounds and what's going to make or break the election, then that's a very different population. They're much more Southern, a lot more Hispanic, a lot more African-American. Um, turn, the turnout rates among those populations could really matter a lot as well as their loyalties mm -hmm. in Are we going to get to that point? If it, I mean, is it inevitable that the it's more the Sun Belt states that become the swing states, if you will? It's just a matter of time, or is it I, not inevitable? Yeah, I don't know that anything's inevitable, but I, I always just like to think from baselines, which is to say, let's suppose that everybody keeps voting the way they do today. Now, that's kind of a bad assumption. The future, things always change, but it's not a bad baseline just for thinking about the future. In that scenario, you do start to see your North Carolinas, your Floridas, your uh, Georgias, your Arizonas really far out, your Texases, start to shift just because, again, the demographic change that's occurring in those states is, is rather dramatic. You, you know what I'm wondering, Alexis? What? Rob knows so much about this stuff. I'm wondering if he's going to tell us who he actually thinks is going to win in uh, 2020. Well, but that I think was going to be my next question. We should, question. Save, it. We should I, save it till the end, though. Well, I have we gotten keep out of the, the prediction business. I am not in it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the survey, one of these surveys that you that you are looking at must tell you who the front runner is. Yeah. For the Democratic race, at least. Can you share that with us? I always like to boil it down. Uh, there's all sorts of caveats here, but if you had to be somebody, be Joe Biden, right? He's been consistently ahead in the polls. People talk about this sort of being a, a race where there's been a lot of changes and ups and downs. But realistically, Biden has kind of been up by about 10 points or so consistently throughout the whole race. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to absolutely positively be him. But if you had to be somebody, it seems— uh, Every, you know, Democrats are so disappointed that Joe Biden is the front runner, And I, I'm kind of like— What's wrong with Joe Biden? I mean, he's old, I know, uh, and people have uh, Joe Biden anxiety that every time he opens his mouth, they're like, <laughs> please don't, you know, have a conniption right now. But um, I mean, he's been like Mr. Steady. But you, all, you all speak along. about I mean, old. You've also got Bernie Sanders. We can't talk about old without also talking about Bernie Sanders. We talk and about the age of the candidates sure, all the time. We do. So. And uh, actually, Rick even brings in his dolls, dolls of them. Yeah. They're not here I had today. I too much but... going on today. All right, I, I know. We, had a, we have a crowded back. podcast. It's a different podcast than ones I've been on in the past. good. Not less dolls. <laughs> we'll bring them next if time. If okay. worried, the dolls are safe and they'll be okay. here next time. All right. But why is it that it was last time too and in, in last election, this election, it seems like younger people are going for the older candidates, right? You have yeah. a lot. I mean, Bernie Sanders' base is pretty young given that he's in his upper 70s. Yeah. So not just in 2016, but it's been one of the most dominant features of the 20, uh, 2020 primary is that these young voters are really still uh, very heavily voting for, uh, for Bernie Sanders, older voters, a lot more. Are they actually voting? Biden. They're actually voting well, for the or, older sorry, candidates they're, or they're expressing preference? Yeah, they're, but... they're expressing a preference right now. As I'm sure you know, what's going to actually happen is in the primary, which is a very low turnout setting, younger voters are, are not going to be as well represented as they are, let's say, in a general election. But but it's still not, you know, it's one of the reasons that Sanders gets Meaning that, that younger voters don't come out for the primaries. D not at as high a rates, right, as older voters. And if voters. they did, 
things could really change. Oh, absolutely. I mean, do you know what I mean? If you saw parity level turnout, like in a primary and a general election and a whatever, between different age groups, we would be looking at dramatically different uh, election results than we uh, hmm. than we would sort of what we see right now. Are millennials uh, making a difference? So. To my mind, uh, so first of all, we overstate the millennials, you know, um, the effect of millennials. I mean, young people have always been idealistic and, you know, different for, you know, rebelling against their parents and stuff, whatever whatever their parents' values are. Can you say that millennials are making a difference on election outcomes yet in any way that's different from the past? Oh, yeah. I mean, so I, I guess here's the, here's the big thing, because again, it's, it's always, um, people are always waiting for sort of the millennial election to happen, right? The one where they have a really big impact. But again, glacial movements, slow over time things. Um, I'll just give you one data point, which is uh, probably somewhere in about the mid-2020s, we're actually going to see an election where Gen Z, so that's the one even mm. a little bit younger than millennials, plus millennials, voters, make up a larger percent of voters than boomers do. And that's probably going to happen within the next, like, I would welcome that. four or six years. My son is about, will be able to vote in this upcoming election for the first time. He is very excited. All of his friends are. Yep. I know they're going to go out and they're going to vote. Who do they, does he, is he a Bernie supporter? Do you know? He's, he's not, actually. And he's still trying to decide, though, who he's going to vote for. So I give him a lot of credit. He sits there and listens to the debates and watches them. And we have discussions at home all the time. Well, my, my son, Robert, last time was his first chance to vote. And he loved Bernie Sanders. I was like, son... We need, we <laughs> Are you influencing here. your son? We have a talk here: socialism versus capitalism. I mean, I'm like, yeah, you vote for whoever you want to, but anyway. But, but I think that I think the second impact. So one is that growing size. The second piece of it is that they are much more liberal than uh, other generations. Now, there's always the story, right? Don't you get more conservative as you get older? It's not happening yet for millennials. We've been tracking them over time for now. And the oldest millennials are well into their 30s. We're just not mm -hmm. seeing that conservative turning point with that generation yet. I'm trying to think. The, one of the sayings is you, as you start paying taxes, you get more conservative. Sure. Or the other saying mm -hmm. is a, conser a, a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. Um, <laughs> and, and you could say t paying taxes and getting mugged is the same thing. I guess millennials are paying taxes by now. I mean, it, right? so again, I mean, it's, it's all been delayed by the recession, yeah, but, but buying houses, yeah. having kids, yeah. paying taxes. These are all happening. But again, we're just not seeing that turn that we've seen right. in previous election or previous sort of generations. Are you are you able to, able to glean from these surveys whether or not Democrats feel they're better off versus Republicans or vice versa since Trump took office? Oh, they absolutely feel worse. Um, Democrats. But, yeah. So, I mean, and again, across a bunch of questions, how's the economy doing? They say it's doing, they're more likely to say it's doing worse, even though it's doing great, obviously. Um, they're more likely to say their personal finances are not doing well, even though they've probably, you know, improved given sort of what's going on nationally. Um, they're less optimistic about the future. This is a, uh, one of the th ways that I talk about this is hurricane partisanship everything has gotten caught up in the motions of partisanship. It started to infect how we think about everything in our lives at a much higher rate than it used to. Um, so from a public opinion angle, it's sort of – it's an interesting time, but it's also very frustrating because every one of my questions that I start asking just look like partisan yeah. breakdowns. So I, I've seen a lot of these survey results and I'm perplexed by this because it seems to me um, there is data on uh, who is a – who are the Republicans and who are the Democrats and correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding you, – you've talked about this a little bit before – that the Republicans have shifted from like the businessman party – over time to more, much more um, working class voters and blue collar voters, uh, whereas uh, the Democrats have kind of gone the opposite way. So fewer um, blue, blue collar voters, but more urban professionals. And I think if you look at um, like income data by, by party, I think Democrats are actually more prosperous in general than Republicans, aren't they? So fascinating thing that happened in 2016. Go back prior to that and pretty much uh, one of the most consistent 
uh, relationships that we saw was that if you make a little bit more money, you're slightly more Republican and conservative leaning. That's That's been the sort of trend for a long right. time in American politics. 2016, that line flattened out. Yeah. That is to say that like income stopped being a good predictor of who you were going to vote for. Um, so it's sort of, again, a sea change that we're experiencing in American politics right now where that – it's not that they flip sides. It's just that mm. it started looking a lot flatter in terms of the relationship. Well, I see – when I see Democrats saying – and I've been a frequent critic of Trump. But I mean the economy is, has gotten consistently better for – uh, 10, 11 years here. So when I see Democrats saying, oh, now they feel worse off, it's like that's it's, de- it's de- demonstrable that you are actually better off. Yeah. Um, how could you not be better off? Because home values are going up. Stock, stock market. Markets, I mean, right. per, uh, household wealth, every, any way you measure it is going up and yet you feel worse off economically. Yeah. Well, that's um, the party line. They're, they, just, they're, they're not just talking the party line. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's beyond party line though too. It's It's – it's shaping how people view kind of everything. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I live in Washington, D.C. It's a very Democratic-leaning place. It's 95 percent of people voted for De- for uh, Clinton in 2016. Um, but you could actually see people's like just their mental health and their physical health and all sorts of weird yeah, things that's... start to happen. But, but I'm saying it's partisanship really has become a more central core piece mm. of our identity. And it's it has it's having spillover effects into other sort of our, our I mean, opinions. We, and how we, we need to have stuff. another podcast about what to do about that because that's <laughs> bad news. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I say to people is uh, we were talking about this a little bit before. You know, when you watch cable news, you, suddenly everybody thinks they live in Washington, D.C., but nobody lives in Washington, D.C. except for you. That's right. I'm um, the only person. And, <laughs> I mean, well, and I'm still trying to get a senator. Obviously, like 0.02 percent of Americans live in yeah. Washington, D.C., and everybody actually lives in a local community somewhere where you have friends and neighbors and you uh, have Sunday well, dinner with your issues. family even, and maybe you go to church or you go bowling. You don't live this stuff in your real life. Right. And the thing even I'm with, just ranting, with, with social media, though, no. <laughs> Oh, you bring up a good point is that you can really curate your world to be the news you want it to be and the outlooks you want it to be to have. And so if you want to only listen to right leaning news, there's a place to do that. And if you want to chat with people who are right leaning on social media and that's all you want to do, you can do that. And perhaps that's sort of what's playing out in, in your survey results. Yeah. And still a healthy portion of the population, as you were kind of saying, who's just not doing any, any of those, right? Just saying like, I'm not really following the news. Um, Good for them. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> no, there's a, it's a healthy chunk of the population. Always has been. You mentioned Biden, but let's talk about some of the other folks and how <laughs> and how the electorate is viewing them. I mean, Michael Bloomberg, very late to the game. I don't know if he's shown up in any surveys yet and what do people think about him? Uh, so uh, Bloomberg and Steyer are a great test case in how much of the vote you can just buy with ads. Mm. They're, you know, they're as close to a natural experiment as anybody could hope. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like having really no basis support, coming in pretty late in the game and just buying ads like crazy. No ground game. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, well, yeah. it depends on the state a little bit. But yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like much lower than the other candidates. Um, and, you know, what you kind of see almost lines up with some of the research that's been done about this, which is like Bloomberg is like hitting about five points nationally. That seems to line up with the literature that we have about what you might be able to buy. News just came out recently that Steyer's looking like 15% in South Carolina. He's going to qualify for the next yeah, debate absolutely. because of that. Yeah, this yeah. will be really interesting to see if that holds. I mean, one of the dynamics there is actually just that nobody is spending any money in South Carolina because they're all hoarding their their resources for some of the earlier states. Um, but whether once other candidates start sort of pouring money and, and effort into those uh, South Carolina, whether you see those numbers shift around. Are you, would your guess be that, yes, you can buy votes more easily than in the past? Especially in a primary. Do you know what I mean? Because it's it's a it's a squishy space where you know people don't have again general election 
Democrat, Republican, people have strong signals about who I should support and what makes yeah. sense in terms of my choices. Mm-hmm. Primaries, suddenly there's, okay, it's within the Democratic Party now or within the Republican Party. Who do I support and what does that look like? It's a lot more room to breathe uh, with with those sorts of resources. So you've, you, you've described Biden, Joe Biden, as the Democratic front runner. If not him, who is, mm-hmm. who is right behind him? Yeah, so it would be Bernie Sanders. You know what I mean? Just, you know— uh, Again, there's all sorts of caveats I could add to this. But really, if you could be anybody, you'd be Joe Biden. If you couldn't be Joe Biden, you'd be Bernie Sanders because he appears to have the – And where does does Warren fit into all that? Uh, She's probably coming in uh, probably sort of in roughly third space. So like, again, look at the national polls. Look at roughly where the candidates are laid out. It looks roughly like Biden – uh, Sanders, then Warren, then Buttigieg, right? And, mm-hmm. that, and they're, the probability that they kind of win it seems to fall yeah. roughly in line with those. So let me ask you about health care. Uh, this is another one where if you look at uh, attitudes toward health care split uh, between how Republicans feel and how Democrats feel, it makes it seem as if Republicans have much better health care than Democrats have because they – uh, seem to be le- more satisfied and see less need for some new form of help on health care. But I, I just can't imagine that that's actually true because health care seems to be almost a universal issue uh, where everybody – even if you have good insurance, you understand the problem of out-of-pocket costs and stuff like that. So I guess two things there. One, health care has almost always been a more democratic issue, right? It's, so there's people who do analysis of party platforms and how much stuff is talked about in the debates. Healthcare just perpetually is sort of in the democratic bloodstream in a way that it doesn't exist as a conversation as much within the Republican Party. Um, second piece of it is there's actually some significant divides. I mean, you know, again, Look back at any of the debates that we've had so far. Healthcare has played a pretty important role in those debates, and especially sort of arguing over uh, a, sort of a, a government option versus Medicare for all. This is a this is a dividing line within the Republican or sorry the Democratic Party right now. Well, is there any sign that the healthcare as an issue is crossing over? Uh, not so much to Republicans who would vote for Trump no matter what, but to the swing voters who might determine the outcome here? So it, it'll be interesting to see if that if that is the case. It's certainly that's the narrative that came out of 2018 is that the Democratic Party had something of a laser-like focus on issues that weren't necessarily Trump's a bad guy or look at the personal character of Trump, but really like lasered in on health care and a couple of other issues, and that that seemed to, again, at least as narrativized, uh, help them in 2018. We started the podcast talking about how the economy doesn't seem to hold sort of the weight it used to with, with voters. If that is the case, are you finding what is? I mean, is it health care? What are they sort of honing in on as their biggest concern or issue? So, you know, I I always think about the things that people can connect with easily and also are sort of core to their identity. And, you know, Trump, again, is sort of a perfect example of this. He's really made immigration and issues around race and issues around gender kind of central to the conversations that we're having in American politics. He's shown an incredible ability to help shape what coverage looks like within uh, the American media and also what we get to focus on. And the American public, by the way, not surprisingly, when it keeps hearing news about a single topic goes, oh, I guess this is the thing that I should make decisions along. And that's what we saw in 2016. We saw among these Romney-Clinton voters, among these Obama-Trump voters, we saw people starting to sort themselves out on the basis of issues around race, around gender, around immigration. So if you're Joe Biden, you need um, some of those Obama-Trump voters to become Trump-Biden voters, right? I, yeah, I, I think anybody um, would very happily win back some Obama-Trump voters. Um, again, they probably made up something about 5% of the electorate. 
but they're really strategically placed in terms of where they live. So winning back even a quarter of those voters would be and any candidate. Well, that could be yeah. 1% in some district in Minnesota or Wisconsin or Nevada, yeah. and that could flip the state, right? Yeah. I, I, again, think about how close the election was uh, in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. Michigan, and Pennsylvania. These were states that were won by a couple of thousand votes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 10%, yep. 25% of those voters come back the other way. That's an election. Rob, Rob Griffin, I, 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 I did a uh, – we have to go? Well, no. Go ahead. Get it in. Get it in. <laughs> so, the la- so I'll just make this lesson. Um, so I did a story recently, uh, and I don't mind provoking some of our audience here at Yahoo uh, and Yahoo Finance. I said Trump is going to lose. I'm predicting Trump is going to lose in 2020. And one of my um, data points was I, I, I think the economy is just not strong enough. Um, for, to get Trump over the top. And there's tons of data about how, you know, with when the GDP growth is 2%, what approval corresponds with what approval rating needed to get 270 electoral votes and stuff like that. And we're probably going to have um, GDP growth of around 2% um, around this time next year. We probably will have a, a labor market that looks about the way it does right now. Who knows what will happen in the stock market, but that's, that's a little less important to ordinary voters. Would you go along with that, that Trump actually needs a stronger economy in order to win or comment on that in any way? I, you know, I, I think it would certainly help him. I mean, I, there's no scenario under, under which I'd say the economy is doing better and that's a liability for him. Um, you know, I'd say what's going to happen in 2020 is, again, it's some of these long-term trend headwinds. Um, the population is changing. He hasn't been particularly popular. Even with this really growing economy, he hasn't been able to capitalize it. It puts him in a tough position. My caveat on that entire thing is that there's there's really not a scenario where anybody's talking about him winning the popular vote right now. Mm. But so so – we have all these national numbers about how he's doing, but it's really going to come down to the Electoral College. Uh, and this is a place where he has shown a surprising amount of strength in the past. The geography of his support is rather strong. And if he's able to capitalize it in those places, it doesn't matter if, you know, whoever the Democratic nominee is, is getting millions of votes in California if they don't quite get the votes where they need them. I think the Democrats should pay attention to the Electoral College this time. You would think they would, <laughs> having learned from 2016, but we'll see. we have a few months to find out. And Rob Griffin, great work you're doing there, and uh, we appreciate you coming in. would love for you to come back, too, as we move closer to the election. I'd be happy to be back. see what the electorate is, is thinking. All right. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us today. I'm Alexis Christophers. Be sure to follow me at Alexis TV News. Me at Rick J. Newman, and please be nice. And Rob, what's your Twitter? Uh, My Twitter is RP underscore Griffin. Sounds good. All right, everybody. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to rate and review what you just heard. We'll see you next time.